Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Library Company. I'm John Van Horn, the director, and we're really delighted to have all of you here with us this evening. Pleased to be co-sponsoring the program this evening with our friends at the Morris Arboretum of the University of Pennsylvania. So I'm, I especially welcome supporters of the Morris Arboretum. And also we have a few members uh, with us this evening from the local Oxford uh, University chapter of alumni. So we're, we're glad to have you here as well. Uh, they'll, they'll go anywhere to hear about an Englishman. Uh, so I'll be introducing our, our speaker in just a minute. But before I do that, I want to recognize uh, Paul Meyer, who's the director of the Morris Arboretum. Well... Thank you, John, and I just am delighted to be able to uh, congratulate Elizabeth McLean on the publication of her book. I think this is such an important work. You know, we here in Philadelphia think of, of this city as being the garden capital of North America, and it was John Bartram, and in no small part because of his correspondence with uh, Peter Collinson, that, that those foundations were laid so well. And it's especially important that we really understand our past and where we've been as we plan uh, for our garden's future. Uh, Elizabeth, I just want to let you know how proud we are of, of your, your work and your publication of this book. I know how long and hard you've worked on this. <laughs> Everybody's nodding, yes, yes. And it's just terrific that the book is now published, and we're all here to join you in celebrating that, that great event. And, John, thank you and all your colleagues here for your hospitality this evening. Thanks, Paul. I guess I should have had a copy of the book to wave around here, but you should all know that we have copies available here at, at the desk, and Elizabeth has uh, initialed some of them and will be glad to write a personal inscription on any of them if you uh, would care to get one after the program. So that's my commercial plug. Uh, I've known Elizabeth McLean so long that I had to actually stop and think about exactly how our friendship developed all those years ago. Elizabeth tells me that she got hooked up with the library company back in 1980, which was actually five years before my time began here, when she was working on two exhibitions that a Philadelphia consortium of public gardens, which was headed by the Morris Arboretum, uh, was working on. Uh, one exhibit was at the Philadelphia Flower Show, and the other was at the Chelsea Flower Show in London. The first was about 300 years of Philadelphia gardens, and the other was a very different one, about 300 years of plant exchange. Bill Klein was then the head of the Morris, and he suggested that, he, he told my predecessor, Ed Wolf, uh, about Elizabeth and her work and suggested that she come down here, uh, which she did uh, and proceeded to get a kind of a mini lecture, although it was probably more of a, of a major lecture from Wolf, uh, about the books that the, that the colonial Americans were using. And among those was John Wurlidge's Systema Agriculturae, or The Mystery of Husbandry Discovered, uh, our copy of which uh, was given to Isaac Norris in 1717 by one of uh, Elizabeth's ancestors, uh, the widow of Samuel Carpenter. And that book is now in our collection. So Elizabeth pretty much became a regular in our reading room, and it was in 1989 when Tony Garvin was the president of our board that we decided to put Elizabeth to work on our board since she was spending so much time here anyway. Uh, so if you do the math, this year marks the 20th anniversary of Elizabeth's service on our board. And you know that Elizabeth wasn't just any old board member. 
She served for six years as our secretary, uh, then for a couple of years as a vice president, and then in 1998 became the first female president of the board of the library company and served in that uh, position. Served in that capacity for five years, and currently she's still a regular uh, trustee and the co-chair of our development committee, and of course serves on the board of the Morris Arboretum, uh, and has a number of other institutional affiliations as well. She's had quite a career as a garden historian. Uh, because of her accomplishments as a collector and a scholar, she's been elected to the Grolier Club in New York City and to the American Antiquarian Society in Worcester, Massachusetts. She's lectured widely and attended a lot of conferences uh, and published numerous articles. She served as a consultant for historical restorations of 18th and 19th century gardens. She's consulted for special exhibitions at the Flower Show. She's taught uh, on the faculty of the Morris Arboretum. The list goes on. I'm sorry, the uh, Barnes Foundation. Uh, And the list could go on. Uh, But I won't extend it any further, except to say that we're really delighted to have uh, Elizabeth McLean with us this evening and to uh, celebrate with her the book. Tell us all about Peter Collinson. Thank you to the library company for inviting me to speak and to the great staff, some of whom are here, for supporting my various researches. And thanks to the Philosophical Society, especially the late Whit Bell, for encouraging Jane O'Neill and myself in our researches and then for publishing the book. Thanks, too, for Chris Van Horn, who was more than a copy editor and without whose help the book might still be in manuscript. Thanks to the Mars Arboretum for co-sponsoring tonight's event and for inviting me as part of a consortium, which John mentioned, the Philadelphia Public Gardens, to work on an exhibit at the Chelsea Flower Show, celebrating the tercentenary of the founding of Pennsylvania in 1982. This goes back a ways, but so do I. <laughs> it was in that connection that I was introduced to the late Jean O'Neill because of our mutual interest in Peter Collinson, whom we felt deserved to be better known. Entitled Penn's Woods Revisited, the exhibit celebrated 300 years of plant exchange between England and Pennsylvania. For the dust jacket, um, a PC's biography, we used a graphic from that exhibit because it helps tell the story then and now. We knew in Peter Collinson, the 18th century natural history exchange, we have told the story of an 18th century London Quaker, cloth merchant, enthusiastic amateur botanist and horticulturalist, but much more than all of this. His life is a lens through we can see the passion for natural history that was such an important part of the 18th century enlightenment. His portrait shows the rhododendron maximum, which he introduced to cultivation through Philadelphia's John Bartram. It shows two paper nautilus shells, which come from eastern North America, and a book on the left illustrating Collinsonia, which was named for him by Linnaeus. But what the portrait doesn't show was his genial personality or his delightful inquiring mind, the kind of person you are glad to have as a friend. I can't give you the whole life of Peter Collinson in 40 minutes, but I will give you such you'd never buy the book. But I'll give you the highlights. The emphasis will be on what was closest to Collinson's heart and mine, the plants, as well as his Philadelphia connections. Collinson was born in 1694. His parents were Quakers and his father a draper. Their shop might have looked a bit like this. Peter and his brother James went into business when in their teens and carried on with their mother at first after their father's death. 
Their shop was on Grace Church Street, which led, led down to the London docks and then over to the Customs House. <coughs> uh, he would have seen a lot of the Customs House since his business was chiefly with North America and the West Indies. We know little about his youth, besides trying. We did try very hard. Only that he got his love for gardens from his grandmother, who used to take him to visit London nurseries. A contemporary wrote that while a youth, Collinson discovered his attachment to natural history. We do know that before he was 30, he began collecting seeds from abroad. I want to put things quickly in perspective. The middle half of the 18th century was a seminal time for scientific inquiry, especially natural science. Both the Royal Society and the Paris Academy had been founded in the 1660s, and the Berlin Societas Scientiarum followed in 1700, and approximately 70 official academies and societies of science were modeled after the Royal Society and the Paris Academy by 1793. Collinson then came to adulthood at an auspicious time. The open-minded attitudes fostered by his Quaker upbringing, were in keeping with the prevailing intellectual current. A lively spirit of scientific inquiry, experimental philosophy thrived in early 18th century London. Fostered by exchanges of ideas and curiosities, lots of curiosities, among people like the fellows of the Royal Society and their colleagues. The ideas were shared among the European scholarly community and across the Atlantic in both directions. Moreover, printing and publishing were coming of age. Communication of knowledge was no longer confined to correspondence between individuals or the teachings of academic institutions. Ideas could now be disseminated via periodicals, learned and popular, as well as in conventional book form. And the first printed nursery catalogs began to appear. From a simple background into this atmosphere of scientific enthusiasm, Peter Collinson matured. He became a member of the Royal Society in 1728, a year after his friend Sir Hans Sloane became president. Membership in the Royal Society enabled Collinson to correspond with the top international scientists of the period, including Grenovius and Leiden and Linnaeus, to whom he sent information as well as seeds of more later. Collinson like other fellows, wrote letters to the Royal Society on a wide range of subjects, from the sloth in Jamaica, to fossils, to migration of swallows. He also forwarded letters of others, such as John Bartram. What did not go in the Royal Society transactions, he would send to the Gentleman's Magazine, which has been described as an 18th century New Yorker. And it really was. Although his greatest love was for plants, Collinson's interests were broad. They included turtles. He had one that was rather a pet. He climbed the stairs. Shells. He had the confidence to ask Sloan for some of the latter's duplicates. And fossils. He was ahead of his time in understanding extinction, when most of his contemporaries believed in the fixity of species from creation. From the tooth of the mastodon, Collinson correctly identified it as a plant eater, nobody else did, and now extinct, or then extinct. He was interested in butterflies. He may have belonged to the Aurelian Society. <coughs> At any rate, he helped underwrite the book written by Moses Harris, 
Jr., shown by the page dedicated to him with his coat of arms at the bottom. You may think it was unusual for a Quaker to have a coat of arms, but several did, including John Bartram. He was a member of the Society of Antiquaries, writing for its journal about the round towers in Ireland, still there, among other things. Well, if the Royal Society, as well as the Society of Antiquaries, which overlapped somewhat in membership, were one kind of network for Collinson, the Fraternity of British Botanists and Gardeners was another, called Brothers by the Spade by one of them, Brother Gardeners by another. This was a sizable, somewhat heterogeneous group, ranging from John Power, Gardner, to William Blathwaite at Durham, the kind of garden that was about to go out of style. Or Thomas Knowlton, Gardner first to James Sherrard and then to Earl of Burlington, these on one hand, or James Gordon, former Gardner to Lord Peter, who was to become a very successful, Gordon, not Lord Peter, was to become a very successful nurseryman. Academia included John Jacob Delanius, authority on losses, and the first botany at Oxford, the Reverend Richard Walker, founder of Cambridge Botanic Garden, who gave Collins some credit for helping him to start, start the garden. Of particular interest to me was Philip Miller, curator of the Chelsea Physic Garden, here was Sir Hans Sloan's statue. Originally, it was the apothecary's garden. It was on four acres, rented from Sloan for five pounds a year, in perpetuity. And Miller is best known for his gardener's dictionary. There's a copy in, in the uh, Logan Room, which went through eight editions in his lifetime. A descriptive listing of plants, botanically described, as well as their origins, their culture, garden design, greenhouse design. It was the horticultural Bible of the 18th century. Everyone had a copy. It was over on this side of the pond, that included Washington and Jefferson, and even that most urbane of urbanites, Benjamin Franklin. Collinson contributed many plants to Miller, as did John Bartram. As I mentioned, the formal garden, such as that of Durham, was going out of style. And Collinson's active life spanned the height of what now we know as the English landscape garden. This is Rousham, which was designed by William Kent. And as you see, it's not exactly formal. There's a lot of trees, very informally. But if you look beyond all the trees, and I should have had a pointer, up here, it's called an eye catcher. And it's there for one reason, which is to draw your eye out to the horizon. Um, and that field belongs to another farmer. <laughs> I think the Orientals call it the barbed landscape. And this style is what one commentator said, what God would have done if he'd only had the time and money. <laughs> For Collinson, the foremost of these gentlemen gardeners was his young friend Robert James, 8th Lord Peter, spelled like Salt Peter. Peter was, like Collinson, a passionate gardener. However, he had the knowledge, the vision, and the money to further his dreams. Peter was ahead of his time in his design concepts, for he was not planting regiments of trees marching off in order, but rather groves in enormous quantities. Collinson could describe that in 1740, Peter had moved 10,000 American trees from the nursery 
to mix with 20,000 Europeans. Peter planted mounts um, 90 feet high, which he clothed with American trees to look like our mountains. While he died before this design could be fully executed, it does give you a sense of scale. It's hard to find a house. There were also the Dukes of Bedford, Norfolk, Richmond, and Argyle. Bedford was one of the first to have an American garden, basically plants of eastern North America that prefer an acid soil. The Rhodes, Azaleas, Pinkster Bloom, this one painted by Eric. John Stewart, the third Earl of Duke, a better gardener than a politician, was advisor to the Dowager Princess of Wales at Kew, and after him the trees to Wardia, wonderful tree, was named. The great estates of England were being transformed to the natural plantings being espoused by Kent and Capability Brown. To do this, they needed enormous quantities of trees and shrubs, and Collinson, through Bartram, was to be the provider. Collinson, as his letters show, importuned virtually all his foreign friends and associates for seeds and plants. Forget not me in my garden, he wrote, particularly to his American associates. This included Cadwallader Colden, who, physician, botanist, lieutenant, governor of New York, who sent Collinson uh, saracenias, or pitcher plants, which Collinson planted in a bog garden he had created. Colden wrote a history of the five Indian nations, which Collinson encouraged him to revise. Colden did so, sent Collinson a copy of the revision, together with an effusive letter of thanks, stating the revision would never have taken place without Collinson's encouragement. That letter and the volume are here at the library company. Ernie Scholar found them for me. William Byrd of Westover, Virginia, to whom Collinson sent vine cuttings with instructions on growing grapes. John Custis of Williamsburg, who sent him Mertensia, or Virginia bluebells, which Eric painted in Collinson's garden. And there's a note on the right-hand side um, about that. Alexander Garden of Charleston, South Carolina, a member of the Royal Society and for whom, surprisingly, Gardenia is named. Arthur Dobbs, governor of the Carolinas, Dobbs found the Venus flytrap, and Bartram, with much difficulty, sent a specimen to Collinson, which Collinson showed to John Ellis, who described it, as you see here. Talk about networking. Then there was Dr. John Mitchell, for whom Michelia, or Partridge Berry, is named. He sent an essay to Collinson, who sent it on to his friend Buer in Nuremberg, and praised Mitchell to Linnaeus. John Clayton who sent Virginia plants to Granovius, professor of botany in Leiden, who then published them. And Mark Catesby, who was sent to southeastern North America and the Bahamas by a consortium to collect plants. Collinson found him some underwriters, including himself. This is the Lillian Catesby eye, as it actually grows, and in the book. Um, Collinson found underwriters for Catesby's book, The Natural History of the Carolinas, Florida, and the Bahamas. Many of the plants shown in the book were painted in Collinson's garden. And, of course, one of the high points of the story for me is his Philadelphia friends. 
Now here it's important to remember that Collinson was a Quaker. And Quakers had an interest in natural history ahead of most of their contemporaries. And that Philadelphia was the Quaker lodestone on this side of the Atlantic. We have mentioned Collinson's Royal Society network and his network of brother gardeners. But the Quakers had their own vigorous networks, plural, a business network, a network of traveling ministers, a network of correspondents that fit with Collinson's own network of business clients, members of the Royal Society, and all the connections of the latter. Except for John Bartram and Thomas Penn, we don't know how Collinson made the connection with Philadelphia Quakers. <clears throat> the man he described as his oldest correspondent was Christopher Witt of Germantown, who was not a Quaker, but a Rosencrustian. Don't ask me to explain. <laughs> I wouldn't get finished. Dr. Witt, as he was referred to, emigrated from England and joined the mystical community that was already established on the banks of the Wissahickon. And there he created was the set of botanic gardens. Based on notes in Collinson's copies of Miller's Dictionary, in the 1720s, Witt was sending plants to Collinson, particularly lady slippers and flocks and snake root. Collinson evidently corresponded with him regularly, but none of the correspondence survives. Witt was a friend of Bartram's, loaned Bartram books, and turns up often in the Collinson-Bartram correspondence. Joseph Bretnell was a Quaker merchant, friend of Benjamin Franklin, wasn't everybody, original member of Franklin's Junto, and assisted in his stationery shop. Bretnell is best known as secretary to the library company, which had been organized by Franklin in 1731. So those of you who missed it, we had a great 275th anniversary recently. Collinson had written in July 1732, I am a stranger to most of you, but not to your laudable design to erect a public library. I beg your acceptance of my might, Sir Isaac Newton's philosophy and Philip Miller's gardening dictionary, both of which are in the case in the Logan Room, I noticed. Collinson served as the library company's unpaid London agent for 22 years until a new secretary complained because postage was expensive and paid by the recipient of Collinson's habit of sending parcels of seed, cloth, and used clothing to John Bartram in the black company trunk. <laughs> Collinson did not appreciate that. Collinson saw that Bretnell's letter describing the Aurora Borealis was printed in the philosophical translations of the Royal Society. Bretnell also made very fine leaf prints, two volumes of which are here at the library company. But most important to our story, he is credited for introducing John Bartram to Peter Collinson by mail. And remember, all I'm telling you about Peter Collinson, he left England once. And he didn't have email. <laughs> Collinson was a supporter of the library and of the Darby meeting, uh, John Bartram's meeting. And out of the blue, Collinson donated 193 books and 11 pamphlets to the Friends School Library in Philadelphia. The failed to thank him properly, I noted. Two other Philadelphia friends were Dr. Samuel Chu and his half-brother, Dr. Thomas Bond. Bond started in practice with his half-brother, and he finished his studies in Europe, primarily in Paris, one of the first American physicians to study abroad. 
He carried with him an order of books for the library company from Joseph Brentnall. <coughs> he also carried with him a box of turtle eggs, a package of roots, a jar of pawpaw in fruit and flour from his friend John Bartram to Collinson. Those would have been preserved by pickling them in rum, by the way. The pawpaws were from Mark Catesby, who needed them for his natural history of the Carolinas. And as you can see, the rum seemed to affect the color of the flower. <laughs> While in London, Bond also met Dr. John Fothergill, a Quaker, close friend of Peter Collinson, who was just beginning his London practice. Father Gill, for whom that wonderful plant Father Gill is named, also became a friend of visiting Americans and a supporter of William Bartram after Collinson's death. Bond continued his studies in Paris, but he did not get or seemed to want to get a medical degree. But Collinson gave him introduction to Dr. Bernard Juchet, professor of botany at the Jardin du Roi, where he seemed to have had a good time. An important Philadelphia Quaker correspondent was James Logan, counselor to William Penn and his family for over 50 years, and at various times, secretary of the province, president of the provincial council, chief justice of the Supreme Court. Logan was a polymath, and his library, probably the finest in the colonies, reflecting his interest in and deep knowledge of linguistics, ancient history, botany, higher mathematics, and bibliography, to name a few. And, of course, his library is now here at the library company, along with his portrait, this portrait, which was in the Logan room. Occasionally, Logan asked Collinson to send vegetable seeds or materials for his wife. More importantly, Collinson procured botanical books for Logan, which Logan referred to for his experiments in the fertilization of corn which was done in his city garden, not in his garden at Stenton in Germantown. Logan rightly reviewed Collinson as his contact with the Royal Society. Collinson saw to it that it was Logan's description of his experiments was published in the Philosophical Translations in 1735. The paper was important in understanding the sexual nature of plants. It's hard to understand. In the 18th century, they were just figuring this out. Logan acknowledged that he was more obliged to Collinson than to any man in England for his diligence and obliging me for what I want. I might add, Logan was pretty fussy. Um, because of Collinson, Logan became somewhat of a mentor to John Bartram. And of course, Benjamin Franklin. Collinson's friendship with Benjamin Franklin covered a wide range of interests. They were correspondents well before Franklin went to London in 1757 as an agent of Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Georgia, and New Jersey assemblies. He spent his first night in London with Peter Collinson. It was presumably Collinson who introduced him to the Club of Honest Whigs, a changeable group that comprised about 25, mostly dissenting clergy and schoolmasters, including Joseph Priestley. They met fortnightly at a London tavern for lively discussions. One of Collinson's most significant services to science, however, was his introduction of Benjamin Franklin to electricity. In 1745, Collinson sent to the Library Company of Philadelphia an account of new German experiments in electricity, together with a glass tube and directions for using it. 
Franklin said, this was the first notice I had of this curious subject, which I afterwards prosecuted, as he, his words, with some diligence, being encouraged by the friendly reception Collinson gave to the letters I wrote to him upon it. The last two were similar to those first made in Germany, one of which was sent from, to Par from Paris to the Royal Society. As he proceeded with his experiments, Franklin sent Collinson accounts of them, the first of which arrived in England in 1748. In turn, Collinson transmitted Franklin's reports to the Royal Society where they were placed in the hands of the physician and naturalist Dr. William Watson. On June um, in 1751, three years later, Watson presented an abstract of Franklin's experiments and observations to the society. Inspired by Franklin's papers, Collinson searched the London booksellers for foreign electrical books. He found two written in French that he bought and sent to Franklin, informing him that his papers on electricity and thunderbusts had been read at the society's meetings, and he planned to have them printed. He also sent Franklin's papers to the editor of the Gentleman's Magazine, who published them as a pamphlet entitled 18th century titles are always long. Experiments and observations on electricity made at Philadelphia in America. The significance of Franklin's discoveries was not lost on Collinson, who was convinced that something very useful to mankind will be found. Collinson's promotion of Franklin's electrical experiments went a long way towards establishing Franklin's reputation as a scientist. And we may think of Franklin as the man with the kite, but... Um, he was the first to identify positive and negative charges, for example. And he took it out of the parlor into the scientific realm. His, Collinson's promotion of, of, of um, it also led to Franklin becoming the recipient of the Royal Society's Copley Medal in 1753 and his election as a fellow. They weren't so happy with him 20 years later, but that's a different story. A temporary Philadelphia resident, and this is a sketch of his house, barn, and greenhouse at Springettsbury, what is now Spring Garden. This, was t this sketch, by the way, is here. Well, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Go back one. I, what I was pointing is upstairs in the print room. <laughs> uh, it was Thomas Penn, whom Co Collinson had known since his youth. Thomas Penn's mother, Mrs. William Penn, Hannah, was a friend of Michael Russell's wife, and at 14 years of age, Thomas was apprenticed to Russell, who became Collinson's father-in-law, whose premises at Whitehorse Court were close to Collinson's in Great Church Street. When William Penn died, as you know, his widow became his executrix for her sons. Thomas inherited one quarter of the proprietorship in 1727 and in 1746, half from his brother John. In 1732, Thomas went to Pennsylvania, where he stayed for nine years. During that time, Collinson acted as his agent. In 1732, Collinson sent him prints of English country seats. And his usual particular way, he advised Penn to hang them on the staircase of his house. Collinson was fanatic about getting directions, whether it was plants or how to hang a picture. But such a nice way, nobody ever seemed to mind. Um, also, at the direction of Thomas Penn, Collinson acted for Penn's interests in a boundary dispute with Lord Baltimore in 1738. 
Throughout these years and after Thomas Penn returned to England, Collins supplied him with books and packages of seeds. Sprigatsbury was an elaborate estate, and Penn's principal source of plants was his friend Collinson. Collinson sent horse chestnuts, cornelian cherries, that is cornus moss, syringos, which is mock orange. This time I meant it. (laughs) Sorry. Um, Pyracantha, thorias, and something called lone-blowing honeysuckle, which I haven't figured out yet. Not all the plants made the trip safely, as Penn was wont to complain. Penn's interests were strongest in evergreens and flowering shrubs, but he also had a vineyard for which Collinson sent grapevines. Then we should mention Collinson connections who were passing through Philadelphia. Alexander Garden was one, uh, calling on John Bartram. The Quaker minister, Thomas Story, was another. The most famous was Pere Calm, a pupil of Linnaeus, for whom he named Calmia, which we call mountain laurel, and whom he sent to northeastern America to collect plants that would survive in Sweden. Collinson gave Calm an introduction to John Bartram, at whose garden Calm spent a great deal of time. Actually, Logan got a little cross. The relationship between Peter Collinson and John Bartram was pivotal to the lives of both men. A note in Collinson's commonplace book, uh, The Menaean Society, gives the approximate date of their first communication. My commerce with our colonies in the course of trade and my love for planting and improvements put me early on a scheme of curing seeds, as well for my own planting as others. But it was many years before I could do anything to any purpose, until luckily, in Anno 1733, I was recommended to Bartram. Without Bartram, Collins said, might never have achieved his aim to introduce North American seeds in quantity to Britain. Their friendship was strengthened by their mutual curiosity and Quaker faith. It has been described as a long and fruitful association which probably enriched the botanic and other gardens of Europe with some 200 species from eastern North America and contributed indirectly to botanical and other literature of much significance. It was Bartram who provided the plants that Collinson introduced to Europe. On the other hand, it was Collinson who made possible Bartram's role as the preeminent American naturalist of his time. And as mentioned earlier, Joseph Bentnall evidently supplied the introduction by mail. Well, you know the story of Bartram, the king-sessing Quaker farmer with a great interest in and curity about plants. After his introduction to Collinson, Bartram's life was never the same. Collinson drew him into his network of American friends. After some initial correspondence with and receipt of seeds from Bartram, Collinson had a measure of the man and found him a patron, the young 8th Baron Peter, whom I mentioned earlier. This brilliant young Catholic lord, a member of the Royal Society, was interested in quantities of uncommon trees for his Essex estate, Thorndon. In 1738, (coughs) Collinson and Lord Peter underwrote a trip of 1,100 miles through Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia to Williamsburg. Collinson not only underwrote, supplied instructions, such as keeping a journal and keeping live plants in an ox ladder tied to his saddlebags, but also supplied introductions to Custis, Bird, and others. 
along with instructions on how to dress, because the Virginians were evidently a very particular people. Thus, pulling Bartram into his American network. Collinson instructed Bartram on how to mount specimens, even sent the paper they should be attached to. He was to make two numbered specimens for each plant, what we now call voucher specimens. Send one to Collinson, and Collinson would send them to Delanius at Oxford, (coughs) who would then name them, and Collinson would then send back the list to Bartram, which he would compare with his own, and he would thus know what he had. As you know, Bartram made many other trips up to northern New York where he found Bebaum, sometimes was triplets to Oswego, which is why it's sometimes called Oswego Tea, where he met Cody Waller to Colden, out to western Pennsylvania, and then with William Bartram to the Carolinas where he met Governor Arthur Dobbs and Dr. Gordon through Collinson. And of course, his last trip, after being made King's botanist, which this letter tells him about, thanks to Collinson, to Florida. And all these trips, all the way down, Collinson was making the introductions. Collinson also supplied Bartram with books, although never enough to suit Bartram. Bartram was complaining, (coughs) and Collinson said, remember what Solomon said, in the reading of books there's never enough. And Bartram gave as good as he got, say, I take that warning kindly, but I believe if Collinson spent more time with books, he would have been a wiser and better man. (laughs) Collinson also supplied Bartram with an introduction to the library, this library, when I say the library. Although a simple farmer, Bartram was no country bumpkin. He had a keen and inquiring intellect, and it was recognized. He was one of the founding members of what became the American Philosophical Society. Collinson was the great facilitator, we now say, between botanists, landed gentry, planting trees on their estates on one side of the Atlantic, and John, and ultimately William Bartram on the other. It was Collinson who introduced Bartram to over 200 clients, mostly in England. Bartram sent the plants and seeds through Collinson, who then dispensed with them as ordered. Five guineas a box usually a box containing 100 different seeds. 21 nurserymen that we know of, including Christopher Gray and James Gordon, especially Philip Miller, curator of Chelsea Physic Garden and author, as, uh, were clients. Nobility, including the Duke of Bedford, the Earl of Butte, Dukes of Richmond, and eventually George III, and gentry and professional gardeners. As well as to European botanists, Collinson sent Bartram specimens to Linnaeus in his wedding suit, who showed his respect for Collinson by dedicating an edition of the Ammonitetes. Is that how you pronounce? Okay, thank you. To him, to Delanius and Bernovius. This is Bartram's specimen of ginseng, um, which came from Bernovius's. Uh, herbarium at the Natural History Museum. Everybody was mad for ginseng at that point. Um, the Viagra of the 18th century. <laughs> um, but Collinson ha- helped out Billy Bartram with his art, finding him patrons. Examples of Billy Bart's, Billy's work are in the 
there's a scrapbook of Collinson's at Lord Darby's in Knowlesley. The eastern mud turtle is here shown. This is Billy's original drawing at the bottom and the printed version from the Gentleman's Magazine at the top through Collinson. Collinson really liked turtles. Bartram, of course, was not the only American supplying seeds and plants to England, but no one could compete in sheer numbers. One of Bartram's first orders to Lord Peter in 1735 included 3,000 black walnuts, a peck and three quarters of dogwood berries, two pecks of red cedar berries, 3,200 sorry, red dogwood berries, cedar berries, um, 3,200 swamp Spanish acorns. That's just one order. It was not merely the sheer number of the introductions, but their quality that was significant. Through Peter Collinson, Bartram was introducing new plants to both science and horticulture. Bartram introductions included flowers such as bee balm, shrubs such as the rhododendron maximum, and trees such as moosewood and, the, and various magnolias. Bartram also introduced some treasures that had been in and then out of the British gardens in the 17th century, such as the shooting star, the dodecathion, which Catesby illustrated from a plant in Collinson's garden. And, of course, new plants, such as the Franklinia, which John and William discovered in Georgia and which William later introduced and painted. The only time Bartram minded not being given credit is when Philip Miller did not say who sent the Collinsonia, which had been named for Bartram's friend and supporter. Not a great plant. Uh, Colm called it horse mint. But Collinson was happy because he felt he'd been given a species of eternity. Actually, it was a genus, but that's okay. Collinson's link with the colonists was of paramount importance to the European botanists. Um, conchologists, entomologists, and others engaged in natural science. Through him, they gained access to North American flora, fauna, and natural phenomena of all sorts. At the same time, it was through Collinson that the colonists obtained their entree into the European scientific circles. Collinson's connection with Grenobius has been mentioned. A number of Collinson's correspondents were based in the ancient walled city of Nuremberg in Bavaria. One of them was physician and naturalist Christopher Jacob True, who edited something called the Commercium Literarium. I do have trouble with Latin. A weekly magazine published by the Society of Physicians in Nuremberg. Another was True's cousin, the apothecary Ambrose Brewer, Brewer introduced True to the botanic, great botanical artist, George Eric, whom True later asked to illustrate his Plantae Selecti, copy of which is here. There were five correspondents in Russia alone who sent Collinson seeds. Dr. Sanchez, who was physician to Catherine Great in St. Petersburg, said Collinson seeds of the true rhubarb, which he had gotten from China. Eric painted the room rhubarbarum in the Chelsea Fifth Garden. Collinson sent some seed on to Bartram with instructions about how to make a rhubarb tart. <laughs> Dr. Amon, professor of botany in St. Petersburg, sent seed of Delphinium grandiflorum, which was illustrated in Miller's Beautiful Plants on the right, along with a Bartram discovery, Delphinium exaltatum, on the left. Pair on the 
Dad Harville, a missionary in China, sent seeds of the tree of heaven to the secretary of the Royal Society who passed it on to Collinson. Wish we hadn't. But, you know, if there was only one of it, it's really a very attractive tree. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen. There were many others with whom Collinson kept a lively correspondence and passed on a round robin of news on various subjects that he thought the recipient would appreciate. A very different set of information. He's not writing the same kind of letter to everybody. Bureau was interested in shells and fossils, as was Jacob Theodore Klein of Nancy. Collinson had a lively disagreement on the subject of migration of swallows with Klein and also with Linnaeus, because both of them believed they wintered underwater. And that went on for years. And of course, Collinson corresponded with Linnaeus, who didn't have much of an ego problem, <laughs> uh, complaining about his views on migration and praising those uh, like Dr. Mitchell, whom he thought deserved recognition, sending Linnaeus specimens, complaining that Linnaeus took and never gave back, uh, and complaining about all his name changes, because this was the time where Linnaeus was moving to the binomial system. And but despite his grumbling about the changes, Collinson is credited with popularizing, if you will, Linnaeus' binomial system, at least in the English-speaking world. With all the comings and goings of plants from China, from Russia, from eastern North America, what was going in Collinson's own garden? or gardens. I can only give you a glimpse. In the first village in Peckham of London, borough of Southwark now, Peter Kalm visited there in 1748, described a beautiful garden full of all kinds of rarest plants, especially American ones. However neat and small this garden was, there was scarcely a garden in England, which was so many kinds of trees and plants, especially of the rarest kind, such as his. However, Collinson's wife, Mary, inherited her father's house in Middlesex, and by 1749, the Collinsons left Peckham to live at Ridgeway House, Mill Hill. Collinson began to keep a list of plants he grew in 1722. Later, he had the list bound in his copy of the seventh edition of Miller's Dictionary, a gift from Miller. Collinson also had, for the researcher, the delightful habit of writing copious marginal notes in his books. For the period, Collinson's collection of lilies must have been unique. His list in the Hortus Collinsonianus, that is his catalog, included 20 different species, including Lilium philadelphicum, which Bartram had sent, and Lilium superbum, which Eric painted in Collinson's garden. He was best known for his orchids. An early scholar made a list for me. Having over a dozen growing in his garden, they included lady slippers from Bartram, such as the Cypripedium acolae, which um, Catesby illustrated with incorrect leaves. And in his greenhouse, he grew the first tropical order, orchid in Britain, the Bletchia purpurea, sorry, I don't know its common name, shown here with Collinson's coat of arms on John Martin's Historia Plantarum Rariorum one of the earliest examples of color printing from single plate. Collinson also had an extensive arboretum with a number of American magnolias, including the umbrella tree and the Wathwamp magnolia, and of course, the magnolia grandiflora, which Eric illustrated. 
I tend to focus on American plants, but of course he had plants from Russia, including a large plants from Europe, including the stone pine, native plants, especially orchids. And in his catalog, American plants are actually in the minority. His collection of rare plants became famous, too famous, because in 1762, 1765, and 1768, it was robbed. He made a list of the first robbery. The list tells us of what was considered valuable, from his orchids, his fine yellow cassiola, to lilies, to shrubs such as mountain laurel. Though discouraged, Collinson did not falter, making connections for the benefit of others to the end. In the last month of his life, he was getting a small sponsorship for William Bartram's art from the Duchess of Portland, and then persuading Father Gill to become a patron, thus launching William on the career that made William Bartram the first American artist of his kind. Collinson died on August 11, 1768, leaving a note found with his will stating that he hoped he should leave behind him a good name, which he valued more than riches, that he had endeavored not to live uselessly, but that all his days he constantly aimed to be a friend to mankind. Thank you very much. Thank you.